Hello and welcome. We are talking about Little Women, and because it's Little Women, I have to specify we're talking about the 2019 film written and directed by Greta Gerwig. This version of Little Women became something of a lightning rod for reasons not directly related to the film itself. It's a Hollywood period drama with lots of actor moments, monologues, extreme close-ups of facial reactions, so naturally it got a bunch of Oscar nominations. However, what people were fixated upon at the time was that this is the second consecutive Greta Gerwig film to get a Best Picture nomination while getting iced out of the directorial category. The Oscars have a long history of ignoring female directors in general, and Gerwig is hardly the first female director to get snubbed in this very particular way. Billy Crystal once quipped decades ago, Hey, these women-directed films that got nominated for Best Picture, did you think they directed themselves? That joke is 20 years old. So yeah, the Oscars are mostly bullshit, uh, and since it's been a few years since Little Woman came out, I feel like it's a good time to reassess this film's approach to its famous story, as it is a very bold take that distinguishes itself from the many, many other Little Women adaptations out there. So we're going to be uh, doing that for the next however long this lasts. Probably oh, this a bit. This is going to be a long one. Yeah, I kind of guessed. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. Joining me on this one is my sister Cheryl. Hello. And this was my brother Sylvan's pick. Yes, yes it was. I am a Little Women fanatic. Yeah, Sylvan is a big Little Women fan. The novel and Louisa May Alcott's life and work in general is something that he is very passionate about. I made notes like I usually do, but I fully expect Sylvan to fill in a lot of the context and detail and in all likelihood to correct my basic-ass Cliff Notes, Spark Notes version of the backstory. Yeah, I'm really excited for the chance to info dump about this. This is one of my special interests. And I am also here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into the background of Little Women. I'm expecting Sylvan to interrupt quite a bit. Sylvan is all a tingle. Yay! <laughs> all right, for starters, Little Women is a loosely autobiographical coming-of-age novel written by Louisa May Alcott at the behest of her publisher. It follows the lives of the four March sisters, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, from early childhood to adulthood. It was published in two volumes, although most modern printings bunch them together as one piece. Keep that in mind, it'll be important when we talk about li how Little Women gets adapted in film and television. The story was an instant success upon its 1868 publication, although the publisher rejected it first. His nieces fished out of the trash and wanted to know how it ended. They write that into the Greta Gerwig film. Yeah, Louisa May Alcott herself didn't actually like the book. She thought it was trash, but she just dashed out to get some money and was, like, a little bemused that it became the thing that she was most known for. Like, she wasn't mad about it. Fame and fortune was a good thing, but she was a little miffed that like her the work that she tried really, really hard on never got that much acclaim. Yeah, Alcott wrote two sequels, Little Men in 1871 and Joe's Boys in 1886, shortly before she died. It's interesting to me that I, you know, a lot of people love Little Women, grew up with it, obsessed over it, see themselves in the characters, and I've spoken to many Little Women fans uh, over the years. Not many of them have read the other two books. Yeah, I do not have enough time to go over the various critical appraisals of Little Women through the century and a half since it came out, but it is frequently cited as an important precursor to literary realism, beating Stephen Crane by a generation. It's also really important for um, having, like, a young female lead that was, like, relatable and realistic, a very different style of a female character for young adult literature. 
Its themes about domesticity, work, love, and duty, all intertwined and presented from a feminine perspective, was drawn from romantic children's literature and period melodrama. And but, I would like to come back to that whole feminine perspective thing, but we can do that later. But framed from a deeply personal and grounded lens. Now, the one a element that I can fill in that Sylvan probably can't is its history of adaptation. Uh, the first Broadway play that I found out about was from 1912, which is a lot later than I thought. Yeah, considering how into theater the Alcocks were and how actively involved they were in marketing Little Women, that is kind of surprising. Uh, I found, I think it was a cookbook or something, where um, Anna Alcott referred to herself as uh, Meg when she was, like, writing an intro for it. So they were they were down with being the March sisters. That's really cute. The first British stage production was in 1919, and it made Catherine Cornell into a star. There are seven known film versions. Uh, the earliest is a 1917 silent film that has been lost. The second one came out a year later, and it has also been lost. Whenever we talk about silent film on this podcast, I am obligated to point out that 80% of all movies made before 1928 do not exist anymore. The first sound film was made in 1933 and was directed by George Cukor. I've seen most of that one. I had to turn it off. It was real bad. Yeah, he and I was disappointed. I love Kukor. He directed A Star is Born. Yeah, he largely did comedies and literary adaptations. He did David Copperfield a couple years before this. Highlights from his career include The Philadelphia Story, Gaslight, and My Fair Lady. And also A Star is Born. Yeah, that one's not insignificant. <laughs> Yeah, the next one, the first color version, was in 1949. That, that one sounds real bad. I want to see it. Yeah, you said it had Elizabeth Taylor as... As Amy. As a child and as an adult. She plays Amy in both faces of life. And Beth is played by Margaret O'Brien, who was an actual child at the time, but is actually older than Amy. Yeah, it won an Oscar for set design. Uh, the most well-regarded before the 2019 one came out was from 1994, directed by Gillian Armstrong, with Winona Ryder as Joe and Claire Danes as Beth. Uh, Ryder got an Oscar nomination for this, and yeah, Sylvan doesn't like the idea of Winona Ryder playing Joe. Winona Ryder, I could see her playing Meg, but I cannot see her as Joe. Yeah, the next one was, came out in 2018, a year before this one. It was made to mark the book's 150th anniversary, and it is set in modern times, but still goes oh, through most of the plot that. points. I, I, I thought you must have been talking about the PBS miniseries. Okay. Yeah, there have been many TV films. Uh, there's a musical, there's an opera, and there is also an anime from the 1980s. <laughs> I would be interested in checking out the anime. Now that I've finally like broken down and watched the film adaptation with the with this one that we're talking about, um, I'm more open to seeing other adaptations. But before this, I wasn't really willing to check them out because I'm so obsessed with like keeping the purity of my my mental version from the book. I'll watch the anime with you. I'm intrigued. <laughs> I don't think the anime has gotten a localization for the English language market. Ahoy there, mateys. <laughs> you have to watch it on um, what was it? <laughs> there are two badly dubbed episodes I could find on uh, on YouTube proper. Oh, there you go. But uh, yeah, next plot recap. This is very streamlined. Sylvan's going to get mad at me. Okay. 
1868, Joe March, a teacher in New York City, goes to Mr. Dashwood, an editor who agrees to publish a story she has written. Her youngest sister, Amy, who is in Paris with their aunt March, attends a party with their childhood friend and neighbor, Lori. Amy becomes angry at Lori's drunken behavior, prompting him to mock her for spending time with a wealthy businessman named Fred Vaughn. In New York, Joe becomes hurt when... Businessman's a bit of an exaggeration. He's really just more of a straight-up aristocrat. Gonna get more of that. (laughs) (laughs) In New York, Joe becomes hurt when uh, Friedrich uh, Barr... Bear. Bear, a professor interested in her, gives critical feedback on her writing, angering her. This is a bit different from the book, as Sylvan pointed out while we were watching the film. Yeah, that chapter in the book is actually the exact opposite of what happens in the movie, but they make some changes here and there to streamline the story. After learning from a letter that her younger sister Beth's illness has worsened, Joe returns home to Concord, Massachusetts. At a party with her elder sister Meg seven years earlier, Joe meets Lori for the first time. On Christmas morning, the girl's mother, Marmy, persuades them to give their breakfast to the poor neighbor Mrs. Hummel and her starving children. After returning home, they find a table full of food given to them by their neighbor and Lori's grandfather, Mr. Lawrence. Marmy then reads a letter from their father, fighting in the American Civil War. Joe uh, regularly reads to Aunt Marge, hoping that Aunt Marge will... Joe's employed by Aunt Marge as a companion because she's elderly and uh, lame and can't get around the house by herself. And Aunt Marge sees it as a charitable act because the family is poor because of the father's poor financial decisions. And Joe would like to go to Europe. When Meg, Joe, Lori, and John, Lori's tutor and Meg's future husband, go to the theater, a jealous Amy burns Joe's writings because that's the only thing she truly cares about. Joe is a passionate <laughs> wordsmith. The next. I just need a moment with that. I just need to watch what you love burn. It's because you didn't invite me to tag along on an, like an invitation. She had her own money, was her point, that she could have bought her own ticket. But they were invited. She wasn't. Yeah, but come on. Isn't that one of the most like young sibling moments you can imagine? Yes, except for the burning your writing. We would have just beat the shit out of each other. There's some of that, too. (laughs) The next morning, Amy, wanting an upset Joe to forgive her, chases her and Lori onto a lake where they are skating. They rescue Amy when she falls through the ice, and then Mr. Lawrence notices that Beth is quiet, and he invites her to play his late daughter's piano in his house. Lawrence... Beth reminds her of her dead daughter. This is actually done, like, in really well-connected ways in the movie, too. This was part of the stress, or the difficulty, I think, is that all of these are, like, vignettes in the book and tying them together into a cohesive plot. Like, this sounds choppy. Yeah. It's not. It's done really well. Yeah, we'll get back to that when I'm talking about Gerwig as a director and, you know, how she definitely should have been nominated if this film got a Best Picture nod. Uh, Meg sits down with John in the present after buying an expensive fabric that they can't afford and expresses her unhappiness about him being poor. Lori visits Amy to apologize for his behavior and then urges her not to marry Fred, but instead him. Although in love with Lori, Amy refuses, upset at being second to Joe, whom Lori has always loved the most. Despite this, she turns down Fred's proposal. Mr. Lawrence gives his piano to Beth in the past and discovers that she has contracted scarlet fever from the Hummels. To avoid the illness, Amy is sent to stay with Aunt March, who advises her to provide for her family by marrying well. John urges Meg to turn the fabric into a dress in the present day in order to make her happy, but she reveals that she had sold it and reassures him of her happiness as his wife. 
Beth recovers in time for Christmas in the past, and their father returns home as well. After worsening in the present, Beth dies. On Meg's wedding day in the past, Joe tries to convince her to run away, but Meg ex expresses her relation to Mary John. Aunt Marge announces her European trip, taking Amy instead of Joe because her prospects are better. After the wedding, Lori proposes to Joe, who refuses, explaining that she is an aromantic person and does not see herself getting married at all. Marmee reveals Amy is returning from Europe with an ill Aunt March in the present. Joe wonders whether she was too quick to turn Lori down and writes him a letter. Preparing to leave, Amy tells Lori that she turned down Fred's proposal and they kiss and later marry on the journey home. Joe and Lori agree to remain friends after he very brusquely reveals what happened. And then she goes out and discards the letter that she wrote to him. Joe begins to write a novel based upon her and her sister's lives and sends the first chapters to an unimpressed Mr. Dashwood. Bear surprises Joe by turning up at the March House on his way to California. In New York, Mr. Dashwood agrees to publish Joe's novel after his kids, nieces in real life, demand to know how it ends, but he refuses to accept the protagonist remaining unmarried at the end. To appease him, Joe ends her novel with the protagonist, herself, stopping Bear from leaving for California. She successfully negotiates copyright and royalties with Mr. Dashwood, and then, following Aunt March's passing, Joe inherits her house and opens opens it as a school where Meg, Amy, and Bear all teach. Joe observes the printing of the novel, entitled Little Women, and then the final shot is her looking satisfied into the camera. Okay, you didn't you didn't interject as much as I thought you were going to. I mean, I could have a few more times. Uh, Amy doesn't teach at the school. They were there for Marmee's birthday party. Okay, right, we'll get back to that, but first background of the filming, uh, Sony, through Columbia, announced a Little Women film in 2013, so this took a while to develop. Uh, Sarah Pauly was briefly attached to write and direct, but dropped out without completing a script. Greta Gerwig was hired to write a screenplay in 2016, and then got the director's chair in 2018, immediately after Lady Bird got a shitload of Oscar nominations. Unsurprisingly, Gerwig has frequently labeled herself as a Little Woman superfan, uh, I'm sure part of this is just I have a movie to promote and I have to give off the impression of passion about the project, but I she still seems sincere. Oh, I mean, you can tell how lovingly made this movie was. I totally believe that she was sincere. Plus, this movie, uh, this book has definitely had the effect of like really inspiring people who were already like kind of like literary creative types anyway. Yeah, Gerwig said that Joe was a childhood hero and inspired her to become an actress and then later a writer and a director. Yeah, I have no reason not to believe that. And as soon as she found out that a major Hollywood studio was developing a Little Women film, she pushed her agent to get her involved with the film as soon as she heard about it. The whole exchange made me think of something Richard Donner said in an interview a couple of years before he passed, where someone asked him if he thought that the Superman movie was the most important film he ever made. He's like, every film is important to you while you're working on it, but yes, in retrospect, some of them are more special than others. Because, you know, directing a film is this huge, laborious practice, and there's so many ways it could go wrong, and you're not going to get involved if you don't care at least a little bit. Um, the story you told me about Sir Sharon and my car was really cute. Uh, yes. Um, but yeah, while writing it, Gerwig crafted her story to reflect more elements of Alcott's life. Like the 1994 film, Gerwig's movie ends with Joe writing a Little Women novel and then having it printed with Joe March's name on it instead of Alcott's. And that happens at the film's climax. Although 
Kurowa goes in a very different direction. More on that when we get to the thematic bits. It's also kind of in the books, if you read to the last one, um, by the time we're at Joe's Boys, um, she's made it like part of the text that Joe has gotten famous as an author and implies that she's written Little Women. You know, once Gerwig was on board, Shashay Ronan began campaigning to play Joe. Gerwig was a bit reluctant since he had just directed her in Lady Bird, but decided that Ronan's unsolicited lobbying and constant pestering was a very Joe thing to do. <laughs> we'll probably get into it afterwards, but I love the casting. I think she's pretty perfect as Joe. Florence Pugh was brought on board to play Amy because Gerwig liked her performance in Lady Macbeth. Pugh was the last person to show up on set because she was already working on Midsummer. In fact, she was on the Little Woman set less than a week after Midsummer wrapped principal photography. Unsurprisingly, Pugh found Midsummer to be a very emotionally draining experience for her as a performer. Cheryl's seen it. Sylvan hasn't, so Cheryl knows what I'm talking about. I just <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that film's a lot. It's very good, but I don't know if I, I ever want to watch it again. I, I was more... Get for the podcast. Yeah, I was more uncomfortable watching that than the preceding film by that director, which was Hereditary. But anyways, she said that playing Amy was very therapeutic for her. <laughs> you know, I mean, I still haven't seen Midsummer, so I'm just, like, spitballing here. But that could explain some of the, like, darkness and complexity in her turn as Amy. Because, like, damn, that character is not usually that emotional or deep. Uh, Emma Stone was cast as Meg, but she dropped out because she had a conflict uh, with scheduling. She was shooting The Favorite at the same time. That would have been so cool, though. She's very good in The Favorite. I think she picked right. Emma Watson was contacted shortly before filming commenced. They needed an ass. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, she's alright as Meg. I think her American accent sounds a little funny sometimes. Yeah, for as someone who is high-ranking in the hierarchy as she is, Watson cannot do an American accent terribly well. I mean, at least by British actors who often show up in American movies. We're a little spoiled. I, I've heard over and over again from many English actors that American accents are tough. But generally, if a, if, if a British actor starts doing lots of American movies, they're somebody like Christian Bale or Michael Caine, who can usually nail every part they do, except Velvet Goldmine. Michael Caine was in Velvet Goldmine. <laughs> Sorry, I had to. I know you couldn't stop yourself. <laughs> anyway... Uh, Greta Gerwig became pregnant during this process and lied to the producers so she could keep working on the movie. She was about six months along when principal photography ended, and she went into labor about two days after she turned in her first rough edit. So once again, she was committed. Oh my god. Yeah, again, I think we can say that she actually is just a little woman fanatic. I don't understand the suspicion there. <laughs> I'm not suspicious. But yeah, everything she said about it was during promotional interviews for the film. She's like, oh, that'll be a good story for the red carpet later, because it is. Gerwig was very, very concerned about relighting the film properly, to the point where she started pestering Steven Spielberg's people about it. And she eventually got to pick his brain. And he told her that if you're shooting a period film with natural light, you should not use digital and instead use 35 millimeter film stock. 
Because, you know, Steven Spielberg knows a thing or two about making movies. And, yeah, that was good advice because this is a very beautiful-looking film. Yeah, and honestly, like, subconsciously, when I watched the movie in theaters, I picked up on the lighting differences, but I didn't really notice them until you pointed it out. About 75 period costumes were designed for the film, each taking about 40 hours to create. Uh, the designer, Jacqueline Duran, wanted each of the sisters to share multiple items of clothing with each other throughout the film in order to provide visual shorthand for both their bond and how they're struggling financially. So, yeah. Yeah, that's also stuff that happens in the novel. The novel goes into great length about the clothing they're wearing. That's why I'm, like, able to be like, no, that dress is supposed to be white. That fabric's supposed to be a pale purple color that needs to be a lighter material for the time of year it is. Like, there's a lot of fashion discussion in the book, and the girls do all loan each other everything. Little Women was shot in Boston, Harvard, Lancaster, Cambridge, Ipswich, and Concord, which is the actual setting. Gerwig banned cell phones on set. The March home was built from scratch and was designed to be drab on the outside and bright on the inside. It was spooky looking. Crew members nicknamed it the Jewel Box. Oh, that's cute. Music for the film, uh, the score was done by Alexandra Desplat. Uh, Gerwig hired him because she really, she really liked his work on uh, the 2004 film Birth, which is, uh, yeah, the music is the only good thing about that movie. I've never heard of it. Yeah, I'll take your word for that. Uh, this is a tangent, but Firth is a drama where Nicole Kidman plays a widow who is approached by a 14-year-old boy who is convinced that he is the reincarnation of her dead husband, and he eventually convinces her. And yeah, Cheryl's making a face. Oh my god, that sounds terrible. There are so many ways for that plot to go wrong, and yeah, it goes wrong. Good music, though. The score is nice, and the score for this is very pretty. It's understated, but Desplat knows what he's doing. All, there's a lot of dancing in the film, so he, he gets to put on his Walton shoes. Balls are very important in this period. All right, a reception of this film. Uh, the budget was about $40 million. It made $108.1 million in the United States, and with worldwide tallied in, its total was $218.9. Uh, so it was a big fat hit. It benefited from getting a shitload of Oscar nods. I saw it twice. I really liked it. Particular got six Oscar nominations. Best Picture, not Best Director, uh, Best Actress for Ronan, Best Supporting for Pew, Best Adaptive Screenplay, Best Score, and Best Costume Design. It won for Best Costume Design. Yeah, I remember following that, and, like, I know the Oscars are bullshit anyway, but bullshit. Costumes are great, but everyone else should have won, too. I forget what it was up against. Well, probably the favorite. Favorite's pretty good. Oh, Black Panther. I think Green Book won that year. Fuck that movie. Yeah, fuck the Oscars. Going to the about the cast. First off, Shashe Ronan as Joe. By all means, you can wax rhapsodic about her performance as Joe here. <laughs> okay, so one of the reasons why I particularly like her performance is, or her casting rather, not even going into her performance, but um, Joe is actually like not supposed to be pretty by the standards of her day. And I think like this is a Hollywood movie, so of course <laughs> all of the actors do have to actually be attractive. But I think they did a good job of finding somebody who is attractive 
attractive by 21st century standards, but would have been perceived as being plain and homely in the 1860s. So well done. Joe is supposed to be, you know, tall, um, awkward looking, um, transmasculine, like uh, I'll go into more detail on that after we're done going through the cast. I guess that's more for themes. But um, I think that Shersha does a wonderful job conveying all of that. Like she has Joe's emotions that are like, that's a big part of her character is that she's not very well in control of herself. Um, She struggles with a mood disorder and she conveys it all beautifully. Yeah, I mean, if nobody else does a good job in a Little Woman production, you have to have a good show. She's practically everybody's favorite character. And she, it's she the character that mo- people see themselves in. Because the author sees herself as Joe. Yeah, Joe is Louisa. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen a Ronan performance that I've disliked. I, I cried at the end of Lady Bird, although that was for very personal reasons. <sighs> But uh, yeah, if I do an episode on Lady Bird, I'll get into that. <laughs> I've never seen that one. Okay, uh, Lady Bird is about a teenage girl who is having a contentious relationship with her mother, who is a nurse, so she's wearing scrubs most of the time. And the actress playing her mother is Aunt Jackie from Roseanne. I mean, I love that actress. She's very talented. Yeah, and she's very good in it. And I always thought that she looks like both Mom and Auntie Donna. Oh, I can totally see that. Yeah, and I saw Lady Bird like a couple of months after Auntie Donna died. Aww. So yeah, if Jen sees that movie, she's going to fucking lose it. Jen, does see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, next, Emma Watson as Meg. Uh, you've already kind of talked about Watson a bit as Meg, but a lot of the other Little Women adaptations do Meg dirty. Yeah. I think they actually, like, give Meg stuff to do in this one. I'll talk about that a bit more when we when I go into the structures and we're, we're in, the, in, in the thematic bits. But, uh, yeah, the fact that Meg exists in the last third of the movie at all is different from most of the other ones. No shit. Okay. <coughs> I mean, Meg continues to be a main character throughout the series, so that's news to me. Well, I mean, Little Woman is such a giant brick of a book that all of the movies have to pick and choose which parts they're going to emphasize, and they almost always decide that Meg is disposable. Except for the hair burning. I remember that from the movie that I saw. I mean, that's an excellent moment. <laughs> yeah, Watson's good, and well, while I don't think her American accent is con- is super convincing either, it doesn't quite bother me as much as certain other people does. But, uh, yeah, then we have Florence Pugh as Amy, and uh, yeah, this is this is another powerhouse performance. Oh my god, she's so good, and uh, that was, like, the thing that I left the theater, like, buzzing with, is because, like, in Little Women fandom, a lot of people hate Amy. Um, This movie actually initiated some vigorous online discussion from people, like, kind of guiltily going, like, I actually always liked Amy, and Frances Pugh makes me okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) There was a lot of discussion about this performance, and I personally never hated Amy, um, because, like many people, I identify with Joe. I see myself in Joe. So Amy reminds me of my youngest sister and our contentious relationship growing up. And, you know, part of the reason why Little Women resonates with people so much is because it does feel very real. And I think it gets into the complexities of sibling relationships where you can go from like, they're under your skin so much, you fucking hate them so much, but you also love them so much and no one else is allowed to hurt them. And like, <laughs> it, it gets at those feelings from childhood. And then Joe 
Joe and Amy, as they grow up, they become closer as adults. And like that all felt very real to me. So I never hated Amy because she reminded me of a person in my life who's important to me. Yeah, and Hugh gets a, a couple of real blockbuster moments to really sell it. Like, the, the part where she angrily turns down Lori, that's... Yeah, that part isn't in the book. The whole, like, I will not be second to Joe, but I thought that was a wonderful insight. Honestly, a criticism of the book is that um, Joe, uh, Lori and Amy's courtship feels kind of rushed because, you know, it probably was tacked on to please the publishers. Um, so the movie focuses on that a bit more and brings some much-needed depth to that part and while watching that scene it also made me think of you know since little woman is custom built to get a lot of oscar nominations that was one of those moments that does because one thing that people love pointing about out about the academy is that almost all of them are actors so if you want to get a lot of oscars you need to do a movie with a lot of acting in it so if the direction is more important than the performances or the set pieces or the special effects, it's going to be less Academy friendly because the actors are going to feel like they're being cheated. And once that's pointed out, you can't help but notice it. Uh, then we have Eliza Scanlon as Beth, the March sister with the least to do because she dies the quickest. So I had thought she was kind of an odd choice for Beth. I mean, like, she does fine. I give it as an Emma Watson level where she's, you know, she's there. She does her purpose. She doesn't really pull your attention the way Joe or Amy does. I do really like that moment where she's talking with Joe on the beach and she's telling her to keep writing stories and keep writing them for her even when she's not around anymore. And then Joe gets in denial about it and the scene ends with Gerwig cutting back and you see the, the sand being blown by the wind into the tide. I know, I, I loved that. That was such a good visual touch. And yeah, I'll be getting back to Gerwig as a director because she's not a flashy director, but she always sticks to little moments like that. <laughs> yeah, that was a very nice moment. And yeah, Scanlon's very good in that scene. All right, then we have Laura Dern as Marmy. That is a difficult character to do well, based on my prior observations. Dern is good in everything, so I'm not surprised that she's awesome in this. Oh my god, I so appreciate her performance because so one of the main criticisms that people love against Little Women and adaptations of it is that it's very sentimental and preachy, and Marmy is the one who gives most of the sermons throughout the books. So that is where the sentimentality and like Louisa May Alcott is conscious of that as the author too. Like she will like take she will do some self-deprecation about her little sermons and preaching and all that. But Marmy as a character is obviously based on Louisa May Alcott's actual mother, um, Abigail or Abba Alcott. And the woman was a fucking psychopath. Uh, she, like, Louisa probably inherited her mood disorder from her parents because they both definitely had them as well. And um, Abba had wicked mood swings and, like, wicked anger issues and alienated a lot of people. She had big issues with the Peabody family in particular. I had read up about that when I was doing some work on Elizabeth Peabody. Elizabeth Alcott was initially named after Elizabeth Peabody. They named her Elizabeth Peabody Alcott. And then they changed her name when they had the falling out to Elizabeth Sewell Peabody. Oh uh, Elizabeth God. Sewell Alcott, rather. <laughs> um, They're so, so mad they changed the name of their daughter. Yes. So what I like about Laura Dern's performance is that on the surface, you could take the reading of her as being the sentimental, perfect Marmy, who's like an angelic mother that the girls all love. 
but with her expressions and sometimes her tone, especially once the husband is present, you can see the hint of that like quick anger and that don't fuck with me, like that that's kind of there. Like she channels Abba and I love it. And the part where she flat out says, I am not a patient woman by nature. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, hey, I could go to California or you could not. <laughs> Right, then we have Timothy Chalamet as Laurie. They uh, they picked the the pinup boy of the moment to play Laurie, which is sensible. Although, as Sylvan pointed out in the novel, he is described as a dark-skinned Italian type, and Chalamet is not that. <laughs> it looks like a stiff breeze can knock him over. Yeah, Laurie is supposed to be tall and classically handsome with a dark complexion, uh, handsome brown eyes, um, very musical, exotic uh, by the definition of a 19th century Massachusetts puritanical type family. Yeah, Chalamet is a little British pretty boy. <laughs> Although I liked him almost right away. I, I saw the 1994 film and I didn't much like the Laurie in that. Got the impression that Laurie kind of sucks based on the performance in that. We had a fun moment in the car on the way over here because, like, I grew up having a crush on Laurie. Uh, you know, he's supposed to be somewhat dreamy and perfect. In the, uh, not perfect, but, like, he's he's designed for you to fall in love with him reading the book. And, yeah, since you've only seen that movie and it was Christian Bale. This <laughs> is... I uh, know, Chalamet, I liked him, like, five minutes into his first scene. Yeah. Where he's, like, dancing around with Joe, and they're doing, like, wacky, fake, offbeat white people dancing in the in the hallway out, in, in and outside. It was, it was very charming. Yeah, that's Laurie from the book. Tim, like, I'm okay with Timothy Chalamet not looking like Laurie because he has his persona and his charm. One anecdote that I wanted to sneak in about Laurie's existence as a character is, so most of the characters in Little Women were based on real people very directly and obviously because Louisa May Alcott was writing quickly and didn't have much time for fantastical inventions, so she just pulled people from real life. Laurie was fictional. Um, she admitted at different points to having like two kind of inspirations behind him, but he was like people mushed together. He was a composite. He wasn't a real person. Julian Hawthorne claimed that Laurie was based on him, which is a really <laughs> arrogant thing to say. But is if, if uh, you know anything about the Hawthorne family, which I'm assuming most people probably don't, you know the the Hawthorns lived near the Alcotts at different periods, and the kids did play together and stuff but Louisa didn't actually really like Julian and he was kind of a shitty person who did talk well of himself and right, then we have Meryl Streep as Aunt March. Oh, she was so good. Right. Isn't it redundant to say Meryl Streep was good in something though? I know, right? She did contribute more than just being the sassy old lady who is mean but also right. Uh, <laughs> one thing that Gerwig altered from the book that she wanted to emphasize here is that women didn't have many options in the mid-19th century in North America. If they didn't marry well, there was no way for them to support themselves. And she, she Yes, has... the book is very big on actually like, no, it's better to be impoverished and principled than to try to get ahead in life. Marry for love or not at all and this is probably based on the fact that the Alcots were in fact crazy enough to like let their children starve to death for the sake of their principles. Bronson Alcott was an asshole. 
So, yeah, in order to... So this is a different direction. In order to underline this, there were two scenes where Aunt March is just like, if you do not marry well, Amy, and find somebody who can take care of your sisters who are all lost causes, they will die. You do not have any options. And, yeah, what what can a woman do? Aunt March says, like, well, there are ways to make money. You could open a cat house, for one thing. (laughs) And uh, that bit of dialogue was written by Streep on the day of shooting on, like, a napkin. I like those scenes, but I I just gotta emphasize that's an invention of the movie, um, and I think it was good and appropriate to stick them in there, but it's very different from the, the message of the book. Yeah, that was a very conscious decision on the part of Gerwig. Gerwig wanted to highlight that... Oh, social commentary. Very good stuff. Yeah, women's options were extremely limited back then. Yeah, Joe, uh, Louisa becoming rich and famous being an author was definitely rare. The other line I really loved that she had was, um, I might not always be right, but I'm never wrong. And I was like, that rings true. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, so Sylvan put it, Louisa May Alcott becoming a famous and successful writer was about as likely as her getting struck twice by lightning while driving a Batmobile made out of winning lottery tickets. I think she only had it happen to Joe in the books because she wanted to continue to pull funny anecdotes from her real life to, as fodder for the book. Because she, she wrote a few times about how annoying it was to be a celebrity. And then we have Tracy Leftis as Mr. Dashwood. So when we finally start getting to the stock roles, although I, I do think that he was very endearing in this, especially act, asking the little girl who feels like the ghost of his dead daughter to play the piano at his house because he's lonely oh, and sad. Oh, you mean Mr. Lawrence and not Mr. Dashwood then? Oh, right. Mr. Lawrence was Chris Cooper. I'm sorry. He was so serious when he's listening to her play the piano and he's trying not to cry. So the, the one thing that I will say about this with, with their portrayal of Mr. Lawrence is that in the book, he's supposed to be very scary and gruff and intimidating, and they just make him a total softy the whole time. So you kind of miss that um, character arc between him and Beth. But, you know, they, they made their choices about which storylines to emphasize and which ones to kind of like go lightly with. Yeah, based on that um, that meme going around where I hate cliches, and then you point out a cliche that you actually fall for every single time. Mine is, oh, he seems like a giant hard ass, but it turns out he's a big softy. Yeah, that's Mr. Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> Getting to someone who isn't a big softy, Tracy Leftis is Mr. Dashwood. <laughs> he's the editor. Very stock role, although he plays his part well. Uh, oh, he does. I really enjoy his performance. His bad homage with Joe that frames the beginning and the end of the film. Very nicely done. I love this, this short uh, conversation with his wife, too. <laughs> I'm sorry I confused you with Chris Cooper, Mr. Leftis. Then we have Bob Odenkirk as Father March. <laughs> uh, I'm sure his performance in this is fine. And I know that Bob Odenkirk is now seen as just like a, a, a character actor who just shows up in things and plays like the fifth most important role, except when he's an action hero. He's almost 60 and he did a, he, he a gun toting action movie that people liked. But whenever I see him in anything, I just think of Mr. Show and that ruins it. And in this, he's just he's just playing Father March, and he's he's fine. But my mind just goes back to him being thirty years younger, doing blowjob jokes with David Cross, and it just takes me out of it. I don't have that association. I just you know think of Bronson Alcott and go, "You suck! You suck so bad." You two tell me you could go a solid twenty uninterrupted minutes about how much that man sucks. <laughs> I will give the short version of the rant, but I think this is the best illustration of why he was just an awful human being. 
So I mean it when I said that he would put his principles above the survival of his family. Him and Abba had a lot of problems because he just refused to work. Like he'd get so depressed about like the moral depravity of the country or how his principles weren't being appreciated. Um, you know, the, the right sort of people weren't rewarded financially. So his poverty really was a sign of his moral righteousness. And one of the things he decided to do was start up a commune because this was, you know, the fashionable thing for like literary intellectual sorts to do. They were going to live this idyllic life away from the cares of society and stuff. And they were going to provide their own sustenance from the land directly, except he wasn't a fucking farmer and didn't know how to grow food. And also he was prone to crippling mood swings where he would just like stop working entirely. So he couldn't plant crops or do anything useful on a farm. So his wife tried to do everything. They invested what little money they had in this project. It failed abysmally, but part of his principles were that he was a vegan in the 1800s before nutrition was really fully understood, and he made his whole family become vegans too. And they weren't allowed to even um, wear wool in the winter in Massachusetts. He could have killed all of his children. Louisa May Alcott was so mentally scarred from her upbringing of extreme poverty and like having a useless father who couldn't provide for the family. So the children were out to work from very young ages that once she was rich and famous, she couldn't enjoy it because she felt psychologically compelled to always be working and having more money come in for when the money would suddenly disappear. It was a fear of hers. She was financially set for the rest of her life, but um, she was so frail and sickly when she passed away in her 40s that she couldn't hold a pen anymore. So she was dictating to other people to keep writing books because she needed to be working because money. So fuck Bronson Alcott. That wasn't 20 minutes, right? No. <laughs> All right. We have James Norton as John Brooke. Speaking of characters that are usually de-emphasized heavily in the outside media adaptations <laughs> of Little Women, he only gets bits and pieces here, but his moments are nice. He's endearing. His eyes should be brown. Yeah, his <laughs> his discussion with Meg about how she's not happy and he's clearly hurt. It's it's a nice little bit of acting. Once again, this is very clearly intended to get a shitload of Oscar nominations. Hollywood period drama with lots of actually moments. Even the minor guys get at least a couple of beats. And that is actually a really tough scene in the book. And it is usually not in uh, any of the outside media adaptations. They usually tr uh, choose to drop that. Well, I mean, if you get rid of Meg, why are you going to use John? Yeah. Speaking of alterations, Lewis Carroll as uh, Friedrich Baer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when he was introduced, we were watching this with uh, Cheryl's housemate, Liz Jacinta, and Jacinta was like, that's Baer? <laughs> <laughs> He's hot. <laughs> so... The thing about Bear in the novel, I mean, this is a theme in the movie, too, is that uh, Louisa May Alcott said many times throughout the book that Joe is not interested in romance, likes it in theory, but not for herself. Like, she likes having her romantic heroes be literary so that she can close the book and put them away when she's done with them. She never intended to get married, but the publisher would not publish the book if the female lead didn't get married by the end of it. So there was pressure for her to marry Joe off to Laurie. Um, a lot of people, including myself, the first time I read the book when I was 11, thought that that was the direction it was going to go. There were lots of fan letters being written to her. That was one of the things about Little Women being published in two volumes. There was a break between one and two coming out and fans could be like, hey, Joe and Laurie, do that. She's like, no, that goes against everything I've been setting up. She wanted to make Joe single, but since she had to marry her off, uh, I think that she created Bear kind of out of spite like to give a, a middle finger to um, the publishers and to a lesser extent her fans. 
So he's about as unattractive a romantic male lead as one could come up with in the um, mid to late 1800s. He's a stout, large-handed, <coughs> fluffy-bearded, 40-year-old uh, German immigrant who is very kind-hearted. Um, he's described as being unattractive multiple times, and he likes kids and is good with them. So he's constantly filling up his uh, unfashionable clothing with like goodies for kids to fish out of his pockets, <coughs> like gingerbread and little toys and things. So when I read the book the first time, I was like, oh, he's Santa Claus. Joe married Santa Claus. Hey, yeah, Bear in 2019 film. Is not Santa. Yeah, you could do a lot worse than that guy. <laughs> I, I believe the way you described him was a panty vanisher. <laughs> oh, yes. The panties don't even drop. They just disappear. <laughs> it's like, hello, I am a sophisticated man with a continental accent, and I am impossibly handsome and chic. <laughs> You have already fallen in love with me before I finish this sentence. And he's also very sensitive and attuned to Joe's feelings, which, you know, hit differently when he's supposed to be ugly and old. (laughs) (laughs) All right, but put a pen in there because we're getting back to him in the themes, which I'm starting with now. All right, first topic. I only have two topics because I figured Sylvan was going to want to go off for a bit. Uh, first one, messing with the source novel. The Little Women books are in chronological order. They start in early childhood and they end with their young adulthood. And, you know, since there was some time between the first two, they kind of had to be. And pretty much every other outside media adaptation, whether it's a stage play or a TV miniseries or an opera, I haven't seen the anime, but probably that too, is doing that. Greta Gerwig distinguishes herself by jumping back and forth in time. It is, as far as I can tell, the only major adaptation that does this. And she chooses the moments to cross between the first volume and the second volume very judiciously, sometimes with a match cut or sometimes with aligning with specific moments in time. Whereas, you know, Beth getting scarlet fever in the first volume and then dying in the second. We jump back and forth between that. I like it so much as a very, um, I think it cuts out what I saw as the flaw with the other adaptation I did watch, the Catherine Hepburn one, which was very loyal to the source material. It used a lot of the text and the dialogue, but it was so sappy and sentimental. It took all of the heart out of the story. This one goes the other way around where it's like all emotion and all heart and like the actorly performances you were talking about. So like juxtaposing like the bright and the dark moments to make like Joe's sense of loss hit even more after seeing it with all of the joy from the recovery, um, from Beth's recovery, like things like that. This is probably one of the saddest versions of Little Women that's out there, but I mean that in such a good way. And when Sylvan says dark and light, that is literal. Uh, Gerwig uses <laughs> uses uh, very specific, obvious forms of color grading in order to distinguish between the past and the present, or the first volume and the second volume. Because the first volume, the, the scenes that take place in the past have a very golden hue to them with undercurrents of pink. You are literally looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. And the stuff that takes place in the present has a lot of earth tones, a lot of brown, a lot of gray, a lot of green. And uh, yeah, Sylvan said that he picked up on the differences between past and present, but once I pointed it out that way, he's like, oh yeah, 
Yeah, like it's it's definitely there, but I don't think it hits you over the head with it. Louisa May Alcott is not subtle as an author. Um, this, this movie, I think, is a lot less subtle than, or a lot more subtle than she ever would be. And uh, I personally, and uh, I mean, a lot of people have said that uh, the film is implying that the sequences taking place in the past are not literal depictions of events that actually happened in the film's universe. They are excerpts from the novel that Joe is writing and completes at the end of the film. And the color grading is supposed to be a reflection of that. It um, made me think of something that Berkeley Breath had said, and he was referencing To Kill a Mockingbird, but I think it applies to Little Women as well. Happiness isn't something you experience as often as it's something that you remember. Yeah, I, I feel like this works really well with what I know about Louisa May Alcott's life, too, because like as much as she had issues in her childhood because of her shitty father, you know, she had idyllic moments from her close, close bonds with her sisters and her mother may have been a shitty person to other people, but was very protective of her children. And her life just got sad as she aged and her health declined and her sisters died. Um, Amy, the basis for Amy Al- March, May Alcott also died young and tragically. Louisa ended up taking care of her niece and becoming her guardian after that. Yeah, the uh, use of the back and forth time skips and also the color grading also becomes a very strong factor in the scenes that depict Joe's marriage to Bear. As Sylphan already pointed out, this was done largely against Alcott's wishes and at the publisher's behest. It is flat out stated in the film that if your protagonist is a female, she needs to be either married or dead by the end because the audience isn't going to accept anything else. And when we get to the very rom-com scene where Joe chases down bear in the rain to stop him at the train station and then afterwards when she inherits the building from Aunt March and opens a school, even though it takes place in the present, they're using the color grading from the past scenes, which once again, I see as a sign that these aren't literal depictions of the things that are actually happening in the film's universe, but are actually in the novel that Joe has written. And I love that touch. Yeah, the next thing I wanted to bring up was the sense of priorities that this film has. Because to reiterate, Little Women is a fucking brick. I mean, it's not Dune, but if... Oh, I got comments when I was carrying it around school while I was reading it for fun. I mean, there's a big history behind why this is the case that I'm not going to go into because this episode is going to be long enough anyways. But movies, cinematically, theatrically released movies are expected to be between 90 to 125 minutes. And if a film is longer than two and a half hours, people are going to start complaining about it being too long. So if you're going to turn a giant brick into one movie, you have to pick and choose. And like, they did a they did a good job sifting through for content. It's in the book, it's not Aunt March takes Amy to Europe. It's another character that they just left out entirely, Aunt Carol. And there is a long, contrived set of chapters about, like, why Aunt Carol picks Amy over Joe, and they simplified the heck out of that, and it works really well, although those are charming chapters. Most of the other film versions and TV versions of Little Women focus on the first volume, because that's where most of the iconic moments happen. Joe selling her hair, Amy falling through the ice. Uh, That chapter is so good. 
Yeah, I usually cry when I read it. The, yeah, the Christmas play, all the stuff that people like. Um, also, too, the first book is structured around Pilgrim's Progress uh, very heavily, um, and that theme kind of dies away when they do the second book. Um, this movie doesn't re uh, reference Pilgrim's Progress at all. It's really downplaying all of the morality and the preaching from um, the book, and I assume that was a very conscious choice because of how that would play in um, twenty in the twenty first century versus the 19th century. Yeah, Greta Gerwig Little Women focuses on lots of stuff but the other adaptations tend to skim over. As I put it, Meg tends to disappear after when we get to the last third, for example. But another thing that they tend to skimp on is Amy's marriage. And uh, Amy's marriage has a lot of emotional weight to it because she knows for a fact that she's the silver medal. And that's got to be rough. Yeah, um, I think that's a lot of the reason why the fan community doesn't like Amy is because when you're reading the book you do expect Joe and Lori to get married and live happily ever after and Lori and Amy falling in love just seems so rushed. It happens in just a couple of chapters and they're well written chapters. I don't begrudge it anymore. Like I like it but uh, this movie does a whole lot better <laughs> at getting them to and part of that is that it's, it's seated. Like you can see Amy having interactions with Laurie having like a schoolgirl style crush on him when they're kids. That's not present in the book. Yeah, so it thing, feels more satisfying. There's a payoff. Another thing the Gerwig film emphasizes is just um, putting aside childhood dreams for the practicalities of adulthood, which is, you know, something Alcott ran away from both personally and in the novel. You know, Amy attempting to be a painter, Meg's passion for performing. It's and Joe gets to be a writer, but the other two have to compromise. Well, Amy deciding not to be a painter is in the book, and I, I don't like that part, because she thought the whole thing about, like, oh, there's a difference between genius and talent, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Amy should have been a painter still. Yeah, but she gave it up because Aunt Marsh gave her too many good speeches. Damn you, Meryl Streep. Right. <laughs> Last bit I wanted to bring up was uh, Gerwig as a director, because that's just... Greta Gerwig is not a flashy director, and if you are big into auteur theory, I can see why you would write her off and not give her award nominations for directing. She's not an Alfred Hitchcock, she's not an M. Night Shyamalan, she's not someone who calls attention to what she's doing while she's doing it. She is very much there to show case the actors if you watch Lady Bird or Little Women you can notice that the camera doesn't really move all that much it sometimes follows the actors a little bit but it tends to be panning there's not much in the way of zooming and in the, in, in the like but at the same time she is a very good nuts and bolts storyteller and if you I can mean, correct me if I'm wrong but drawing out those kinds of performances is a big part of directing oh yeah essentially a director is responsible for creative decisions on the set of the film consulting with all the various departments, the cinematographer, the actors, the lighting, all of that. So there's a million and one little decisions that you aren't going to consciously notice, even if you watch the film very carefully. I'm sure there's a lot that I wouldn't know even if I was there taking notes while she was directing the damn movie. But still, she signs off on a lot of decisions that really work out and really sell the emotional beats of the story, which I consider a lot more important than you doing a very distinctive like Tim Burton, Wes Anderson thing where you can tell it's them within three seconds. 
getting back to the scene where they uh, juxtapose Beth recovering from the scarlet fever in the first volume and then dying in the second one. She does two bits where Joe runs down the stairs after waking up in bed alone. In the first one in the past, she's really anxious and there's this blinking you'll miss it bit where she's gripping the staircase as she's walking down and it just betrays all the tension that Joe is feeling in that moment. And the way it's cross-cut with the older, grayer seeming atmosphere where Marmy is just losing it as soon as Joe looks at her. Those two bits of just very painterly, expertly paced filmmaking, I, I thought it, it really nailed it. Yeah, I'm, I'm just gonna gush. I, I agree with you. Um, I love the way that the, the different scenes were, were cut together. All right, and uh, yeah, that's everything in my themes. I imagine you have bits that you uh, still haven't been able to throw in yet. Yeah, um, I mean, this part is uh, honestly more to the book than necessarily the movie, but I would like to talk about how I think that Joe is a trans man. I I feel like this is incredibly obvious uh, to, or it should be to anyone who has read the book, but I mostly see people, if they're going to try to claim queerness for Joe, talk about her as a lesbian, which I don't get at all. She never shows any attraction to anyone, honestly. I think if we're going to give her a sexual orientation, she's asexual. But she's transmasculine. I mean, one of the first lines about her in the book that she says is it's her greatest disappointment in life not to have been born a boy, shortens her name to Joe to make it masculine, wants to be referred to as a son, as a brother, uh, cuts her hair off to look more boyish. Uh, She does cry about that at one point because she's been told by everybody that her hair is the only thing about her that's beautiful. Yeah, that's a line in the book. Cheryl just had a reaction to that. That's horrible. They're very frank about the fact that these are unattractive people except for Meg. Meg's supposed to be the only pretty one. Well, they do say that Joe's hair is pretty in the movie. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's her one beauty. I think that personality has a lot to do with beauty and attraction, so it's just that's a horrible thing to say to somebody. But that's the way the characters all view themselves. So yeah, um, I I claim Joe for the trans community. I I believe that she is trans masculine, and if those ideas were more widely understood in the day, that Joe and therefore probably Louisa May Alcott as well probably would have come out as transgender. Well, yeah, that's the thing about art. You're always going to bring parts of yourself to it. I mean, while we were talking about this bit in the car on the way over, talking about everyone claims Joe was a lesbian and using all of the very uh, masculine and boyish elements of Joe to, uh, to sell that. And you're like, oh, they don't see trans mask things because perhaps they're a bit turfy. Yeah. Um, if you see les- Joe as a lesbian, you're a turf automatically. Fuck you. <laughs> okay, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it. I, I, Take us to me. I, I see it as kind of a turfy viewpoint because rather than admit the existence of trans people, you just see like, no, that's a, a masculine woman. That, that Therefore, she's a lesbian. But she never shows any sexual attraction to women or romantic attraction to women or sexual or romantic attraction to anyone. I see her more as an an asexual, aromantic trans boy. All right. Well, that's everything in my notes. Is there anything else that anyone would like to add about Little Women before we close things out? So I had said before that I never really got into Little Women, um, but I really enjoyed this movie. Like, I genuinely did. I thought it was really nice. And seriously, if anyone has the anime, like the complete anime, just just send it to me. We'll do an episode on it. <laughs> <laughs> I am so down. 
I'm sure we're going to think of a million things once you uh, stop recording, but, you know, I'll just info dump at you guys during our leisure time. All right. Well, thank you to anyone who has put up with this. <laughs> and thank you for listening to this episode. We will hopefully get you the click on the next one. Have a good evening. <laughs>